If you're familiar with the Gospels, that caption at the end is not unfamiliar to you. We are grateful that Jesus came for the sick, not just for those who are healthy. And this morning we're going to read one of the Gospel passages that illustrates the way that Jesus dealt with and found time for people who were struggling and people who were desperate for his help. Mark chapter 5 is our text this morning, uh, starting with verse 21. Let me read this for you. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. This continues on the back page. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Tabitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astounded. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray for a moment. Father God, thank you for these snapshots that we have of the life and ministry of Jesus. Thank you for showing us not just people who have it all together, but people whose lives are falling apart and who are desperate for help from God. Very often we identify with these people because we all at some point find that the bottom of our lives drops out, there are problems, challenges, 
difficulties that we are unable to solve and we struggle. And so we come to you with our, our palms up saying we don't know what to do but to turn to you. Lord, perhaps there are people here this morning who are feeling just that way. They've, they've prayed. They've done all they know how to do. They've tried to work out physical solutions, financial solutions, and we still come up short. And so we call on you for help. We call on you for a breakthrough. We call on you to intervene, even in the midst of this busy, challenging, crazy world and all the people that you're responsible for. Nonetheless, we believe that you know our names, that you care about each and every one of us. Lord, this week as we gather together, we know that you've received our worship, but we ask that you'd give us understanding into these scriptures so that we would understand more about you and more about your heart and more about the community that you are trying to build right here in our midst. Guide us through this time. Allow us to see things we haven't seen before in Scripture. And we pray that you will continue to lead us forward and that you will embolden some people here today to take whatever the next step is that you've been prompting them toward, that you've been whispering to them in the recesses of their mind. Give them the courage to take that step forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Country singer Loretta Lynn was once asked where her song ideas came from. Her answer was rather insightful. She said, when something is bothering me, I write a song that tells my feelings. Most of the time, the concept of bothering creates a negative connotation for us. When something is bothering me or you, we try to find ways to make it stop. For me, when a fly or a mosquito is bothering me, I want to squash it, or at least try to shoo it away. When I'm trying to write or to focus on something and phone calls continue to bother me, sometimes I turn my phone off. I put it in my coat and I put it on the other side of the room so I don't hear it ring or I put it on an automatic answer in order to to block out time so that I can get some things done. That notion of bothering, when you look it up in a dictionary, has a number of connotations. It means to give trouble to, to annoy, to pester, sometimes to worry about something. So some synonyms of this concept of bothering are causing weariness, repeatedly interrupting in the midst of pressing duties. Now, I raise these thoughts about bothering Because in the section of Mark's gospel that we're focusing on this morning, we encounter two people who are bothering Jesus. They interrupt when other things are going on, other important things are happening. In fact, the title of this morning's message, Bothering Jesus, rises from a comment by some friends of this man who comes to Jesus in the first scene, pleading with him to heal his daughter who is dying. And they actually say to him, Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Have you ever had that sense that when you call on God, maybe you're bothering God? Is that the way he feels? Were they speaking for us? Were they speaking for God? Or is this an unusual offbeat thought that actually runs contrary to the purpose of Jesus? 
This week is week five in our Journey with Jesus series. We're working our way through the Gospel of Mark, which is a fast-paced gospel. If you're relatively new here to North River, this journey started on the first Sunday of January, and it's going to take us through Easter. And what we're doing is we're, we're racing through the Gospel of Mark, one chapter each week, and we're picking a central theme within that chapter from which to tell the, the whole story and to get a, a sense of the pacing. And then on that final week, we'll, we'll deal with two chapters, one on Good Friday and one on Easter. So if you've never read through one of the Gospels, this is a great way to get started because in a very short form, you can w- work through one of the, the four major sources that we have for discovering about Jesus in the New Testament. This morning, we're going to talk about four lessons from this concept of bothering Jesus that arises here in Mark chapter 5. Here's the first one. Sometimes insiders and outsiders bother Jesus. Sometimes he's interrupted and bothered by both insiders and outsiders. Where does that come from? Verse 21 says, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come, put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. The next verse says that a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had Yet instead of getting better, she got worse. Barry Johnson, a pastor from Ohio, notices that we have two people here who have broken protocol. Two people who have broken protocol in completely different ways. The first is a synagogue leader who broke the protocol of his friends and his peers. The last time Mark records a scene in the synagogue, Jesus had healed a man's hand that had withered, and everyone got very upset with Jesus because they accused him of doing work on the Sabbath. He had indeed healed this man on a Saturday, and the way that people interpreted the Old Testament scriptures was that he'd been doing human work, and therefore he was in trouble that he couldn't possibly be from God. In fact, Mark tells us there in chapter 3 that even before the healing, some people were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, which might have been why they interpreted things quite the way they did. And as soon as Jesus healed that man's hand, Mark tells us that the Pharisees and the Herodians, who were at that particular synagogue, began plotting ways to kill Jesus. So you get the sense that wherever Jesus went, even entering into the worship center, it wasn't a safe place for him. In this case, he walks into the synagogue. There are people who are already waiting for him to slip up in some way. And then there's another crowd. As soon as he does something that doesn't measure with their expectations and their traditions, they're trying to figure out how to kill him and get him out of the scene. Then here in chapter 5, we find this synagogue leader breaking protocol, breaking away from the cynical group of people that we've seen in the synagogue up till now in Mark's gospel, And he is pleading with Jesus to come to his home and to heal his daughter. What would cause a man like this to break protocol, to break from the expectations of his peers? One thing, his phenomenal love for his daughter and the desperation that goes with it over the fact that it looks like she's dying. 
I don't know about you, but I find that if one of my children was hurt, I would break all kinds of rules to do whatever it took to get them help. Would you agree with that? Would you respond the same way? So we identify instantly with this guy. And then in the middle of this scene, we find a woman who fights the crowd to get close enough to talk with, to touch Jesus. This woman is unnamed, and all these years later, we still don't know her identity. We do know that she had a chronic, unusual medical condition, and the word that Mark uses here tells us that she had been hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging blood for 12 years. I've already been asked. I don't know what this disease was. The medical people have a number of suggestions of things that cause some kind of continual or reopening uh, issue that keeps bleeding. This was not a normal thing that had just gone bad. This was something highly unusual. Somebody who's constantly losing blood would be anemic. They'd constantly have less blood than they would need. They would be subject to more and more illnesses. And it says that she had spent a fortune on doctors who had only made her suffering works. Maybe you work in the medical community. I have to tell you, I am so grateful for the doctors and the nurses and the dedicated people that we have in the medical profession around here. We live in one of the areas where we have some of the greatest medical care available in the entire world here in the, in the greater Boston area. So please don't take this as a blanket condemnation of medical people when the Bible mentions this problem. In the first century world, they didn't have the same kind of care and expertise and science-backed approaches that we have today. And so it wasn't that uncommon. The people who had some pretty strange theories about bleeding people and putting leeches on them and all kinds of other stuff would actually make problems worse rather than better. How did she break protocol? Well, the Old Testament book of Leviticus helps us with this because there are very specific rules regarding people who had some kind of an illness, especially if they were subject to constant bleeding. A discharge of blood like this would make her spiritually unclean and she would be unable to gather for corporate worship until the bleeding had stopped for at least seven days. And anyone who touched her during this time would be considered unclean as well. This would leave her shunned, and isolated and frustrated and on top of all of this she'd spent everything that she had trying to find a cure what an awful predicament what an awful problem we find with these two stories that all of a sudden clash in upon each other so our first observation is that sometimes insiders and outsiders bother Jesus the insider would have been the synagogue leader he was powerful, he had standing, he was respected in the community, he was in the elite crowd that hadn't yet identified with Jesus. The outsider would have been this woman who was shunned and prevented from coming into the market, who was shunned and prevented from coming into the worship spaces, sometimes even from touching her own family, or they too would be considered unclean. That leads to the second lesson. People who are touched by Jesus or who want to be touched by Jesus get out of their comfort zone. Let's go back to some of these same verses and we'll notice something else. Verse 23. The man pleaded with Jesus, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and lived. So Jesus went with him. Jump ahead just three verses later, verse 27. When she heard about this, she came up behind him 
in the crowd. In other words, this woman heard that Jesus had come to this side of the lake. She came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Notice something. Both of these people had nowhere left to turn. The synagogue leader fell at Jesus' feet. He tried everything that he knew. He knew that the time was short, that his daughter wasn't just sick, she was dying. And he pleads with Jesus. The woman comes in the midst of this crowd that is pressing in upon Jesus from all sides. They've heard about what happened in town the last time that Jesus had showed up. And she touched his cloak And she's just saying in her own mind, if I can just touch his cloak, one of the older versions of the Bible actually says, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. Can you imagine that kind of desperation? Not wanting to be noticed, not daring to get any closer than that, not wanting to actually touch Jesus, but if I could just touch his clothes, maybe the power of God will be made available to me. Jairus knew that his choices were very simple. The only thing left was Jesus or his daughter would die. Nobody else had an answer. He knew that the doctors of that time were more about sorcery than they were about science. His peers were the last people who would have turned to Jesus for help. But when he suddenly heard that Jesus had crossed to his side of the lake, he reacted He didn't set out that day saying consciously, I'm going to go find Jesus and meet Jesus. It's just the news that Jesus is there. And he was so desperate that he suddenly made his way to Jesus. But a great crowd had already found Jesus, which meant that this would not be done in private. This meant that he would have to break out of his comfort zone the comfort zone of his peers, in order to approach Jesus, he might lose standing in their eyes because he would be identifying with that unnamed group that were beginning to be called Jesus people. Ever been there? I have a very dear friend who comes here now who loves Jesus, and I remember one of the first comments that he made was, you're never going to catch me being one of those Jesus people. <laughs> and he said it derisively, like, you know, like this, this is the worst thing that could ever happen to somebody, to be one of those Jesus people. And now whenever he tells his story, he jokes about it, he says, I am one of those Jesus people. But think about it, this was long before the name Christian had ever emerged. That, that comes after the resurrection, after Jesus' ascension. It was one of the first church groups that are called Christians, which meant your, your little Christs or your, your sons of Christ, your followers of Christ. That too was meant to be a derisive term. But the first century Christians said, hey, okay, Jesus said we'd suffer with him. You want to call us by his name? More power to you. We're Christians then. And the name is stuck. We still go by that. This man would have to risk losing the approval of his friends. And Jesus heard him and began to go with him toward his home. Hope is on the rise. And then, the hemorrhaging woman crashes into this scene. She would have to risk breaking the rules to go out in public. 
We already noted that she is considered to be unclean and therefore not allowed to be in public commerce. It meant that she couldn't go to the marketplace. It meant that she couldn't go to the worship center. But she thought if she could just get close enough to touch the hem of Jesus' cloak. The Old Testament community knew that this kind of bleeding would need to have been stopped and gone for at least seven days for her to be considered ceremonially clean. And they had a phrase for it. And the phrase was to get to the eighth day. The eighth day represented something, something completely new and wonderful. On the eighth day, you got a new life. On the eighth day, you could enter into worship again. On the eighth day, all the old junk was gone. If you could just be an eighth day person, she could be normal. She could enter into everything again. But she'd been living the seventh day reality for too long. And to do this, she would need to get near Jesus. She too would have to come out of her comfort zone. She would have to risk being rejected or identified or called out in public. Hey, you're the one. You're not welcome here. And yet her need was so great that she was willing to take that risk. Let me show you a piece of artwork. There's a contemporary artist named Stephen Yurtson. He's an American contemporary artist who's part of a group called Classical Realists. What that means is they try to borrow from the classical style that was done 200, 300 years ago and take real-life scenarios and draw meaning from those real-life scenarios. This is his rather well-known painting of this particular woman. If you notice a few things, she's down on her knees, her eyes are going forward, but she's not really lifting up her head, not even daring to look at Jesus. And she has the hem of his cloak in her hand. I think what the artist has done is he's combined two scenes. Because at the beginning, she reaches through the crowd just to touch him. And Jesus feels this power go out. But when she identifies herself at the end of the scene, this is where she comes forward on her knees and she grabs the hem of his garment. Notice what we see of Jesus. The only thing we can identify is a hand. And it's open and it's lifting up that suggests he's about to tell her, daughter, you don't need to kneel. Stand up. Rise up in dignity. Jesus is lifting her out of that misery. It's a beautiful picture. Question. Is there a peer group or a comfort zone in your life that is holding you back from Jesus? You know a truth deep down, you long for God to be at work in your life, yet you feel like an outsider and so you hang back. Or you're too much of an insider and your friends, they don't talk about things like personal faith you know that you need the forgiveness that only Jesus can bring. You know that you need the new life that only Jesus can offer. And somewhere down deep you want it, but there's somebody or something or some identification keeping you back. You need an eighth-day experience of having a new lease on life and no longer bound by what has held you in the past. I recently had lunch with an old high school friend. He told me about how drinking and cocaine had ruined his life for years. And then at one point, it was so bad that 
a mutual friend of ours, and that friend's dad had helped him out, and, and together they got him into a rehab. The, the friend spoke to his dad, and his dad actually shelled out the money for this high school buddy. Imagine that kind of a friend. Imagine that kind of a friend's dad. And then he said, Paul, I, I was so stupid. The day I got out of rehab, he said, uh, he went to a bar, the one that he used to hang out at, and the bartender actually said to him as he's serving him, didn't you just get out of rehab? And then after he'd had all that he could have there, he, he went and he found the guy that he bought cocaine from, and while he was making the transaction, the cocaine dealer actually said to him, didn't you just get out of rehab? The next day, when all this wore off, he felt so sick of himself that for the first time, he finally got down on his knees and he cried out to God and said, I can't do this by myself. I can't stop by myself. I need your strength to help me. And he said there was still some back and forth, but that day, everything started to get better. And for the first time in his life, it didn't matter what anyone else would say. It didn't matter that he would lose friends by no longer hanging out in the places that he'd hung out. He knew that he needed Jesus. I've only seen this guy twice in 40 years, and he looked me up and he said, I needed somebody safe to talk to today, and I think I can talk to you. Sometimes there are insiders and outsiders who have to bother Jesus because they feel so shut off from Jesus. But people who are touched by Jesus learn to get out of their comfort zones in order to move closer to him. Here's the third lesson. His delays may actually work to our advantage. We're gonna go back and forward again here in this text. Verse 24, so Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. Verse 27, we jump forward. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. And then jump ahead to verse 32. Jesus had noticed that something had happened and he's asking, who touched me, who touched me? His disciples can't believe it. This kind of crowd, come on, everybody's pressing in. This is like being on the tee on the day of a Celtics game or a Red Sox game. Everybody's on top of you and most of them smell bad. And you're asking, who touched me? You've been there, haven't you? Come on. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at, her, at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? This is where this observation comes from. Why bother the teacher anymore? Notice that as soon as Jesus started to go with Jairus, they were interrupted. Here's Jairus. He's desperate for Jesus to come with him. He doesn't know how much longer he has. The momentum has begun to move, and you have Jesus and the disciples, and there's Jairus, and he's probably leading the way. And all of a sudden, whoom, the momentum stops. This woman with a tremendous need in her life crashes into the story by reaching through the crowd to touch Jesus. 
And she's thinking the whole time, if I can just get close enough to touch his clothes, maybe God will use that. And in that moment, his focus was broken. In Jairus' eyes, this woman was bothering Jesus. This woman was pulling Jesus off the most important mission of Jairus' life. He is so desperate for Jesus to answer his request at that moment. This is a life and death moment for him. And suddenly this woman is bothering Jesus and all the momentum stops. And Jesus senses power leaving his body. What does this mean? I don't know. We don't have a whole lot of descriptions like this in the Gospels. Usually when Jesus heals somebody, he says a word or he physically touches them. Sometimes he, he spits on the dirt and then he puts the mud on their eyes. Or whatever. And there's a physical component. This time Jesus doesn't initiate a thing. Someone just reaches out to him in the crowd and he senses this power surging out as if God had a greater purpose that Jesus wasn't even aware of. That God the Father was directing his steps. And just at the moment when Jairus is frustrated because all the momentum has shifted. He hears Jesus say these amazing words. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So imagine for a moment, if we can just slow all of that down and we're gonna go in slow motion here, just picturing what's going on in his mind. He's thinking something like, lady, stop bothering Jesus. He has to come to my home. He has to touch my daughter who do you think you are? And then he hears Jesus say these words about her faith. How her faith was instrumental in the healing that had happened. Announcing that healing had happened. And he begins to think, is there anything that Jesus cannot do? Is there anything in the world that is too hard for Jesus? On the heels of that, Jairus' friends come and they crash the scene too and they deliver bad news. Nothing but bad news. Your daughter is dead and then their judgment. Why continue bothering the teacher? It's their way of saying, this is over. Jairus, come back to your senses. Come back to the comfort zone where we are. Get away from these nutty Jesus people. Got the picture? And then Jairus hears those words. As Jesus speaks to him, and he says, don't be afraid, just believe. Jairus, I'm not going to tell you what's coming next. I'm not going to tell you which way this is going to work out. Don't be afraid, just believe. He'd seen all the momentum stop. He saw and heard how this woman had been silently healed by the power of Jesus. And suddenly he realized this was not an interruption. This was a mighty confirmation. This delay had worked to his advantage because Jesus had spoken new words in the midst of the momentum shift. Don't be afraid. Just believe. 
Wow. That's the advice we need so many times in our lives. We get afraid of taking the next step. We start to get clear on what Jesus wants next. And fear has this way of taking hold. And fear combined with rejection or comments from the crowd often multiplies whatever's going on inside of us so that we stop where we are and we get stuck spiritually. We stop moving forward. And Jesus says those fantastic words, don't be afraid, just believe. You know how many times that happens in our lives? God doesn't tell us what's going to happen in the next chapter, how your problem will work out. He doesn't tell us about every single detail that's within his plans, but he offers those encouraging words at just the right time. You're taking the right steps, don't be afraid, just believe in me. And that leads to the fourth lesson, the first, fourth observation. The first is sometimes insiders and outsiders bother Jesus. The second is people who are touched by Jesus get out of their comfort zones and they learn to do that regularly. The third of these, these uh, concepts that we learn is that sometimes the delays that we think are frustrating everything actually work to our advantage. In this case, the advantage was he got to see a healing happen. He got to hear the encouraging words of Jesus. And the fourth lesson is stop listening to the crowd. Go back to verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Next verse. Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. And notice what happens next in verse 40. But they laughed at him. Jairus' crowd had no faith in Jesus at all. They told Jairus that his daughter was dead, and they were wrong. They told Jairus to stop bothering Jesus. And this was terrible advice. And then they laughed when Jesus got to his home, and they were about to be shamed and awed. Do you have a crowd like this? A crowd that constantly tries to hold you back from Jesus? Stop listening to the crowd. Listen to Jesus. Stop thinking that you are ever bothering Jesus when you turn to him with his needs. That's the oldest trick of the evil one. He wants you to stop praying. He wants you to stop believing that God cares about you. He wants you to stop believing that God can sometimes break through and do things that seem impossible. He wants you to completely give up on those thoughts. I'm not saying he's going to heal in every situation. But when we stop believing, we take ourselves out of the realm of asking. And then nothing happens. Listen to Jesus. Don't be afraid. Just believe. I'm not sure that Jairus really had what you and I think of of, of a fully formed faith until that moment. At the beginning of the scene, he was desperate and reaching out because he'd heard about Jesus and thought, well, maybe Jesus can help me too. But we have no indication about anything that he believed about Jesus. He hadn't set out at the beginning of the day saying, 
top thing on my agenda. I'm going to meet Jesus today. No, he just heard that Jesus was there and he reacted. But then when he saw what happened with this woman who bothered Jesus and he heard the words that he spoke to her and he heard the encouraging words from Jesus to him, don't be afraid, just believe. Jairus did. And what Jesus did was amazing. One more painting. This one is from a Russian artist in the 1800s, Vasily Polonov. He was a Russian realist. And he did this one in 1871. I don't know if you can see this uh, closely enough, but in the, in the foreground we have Jesus and, and the young girl and he's, he's holding out his hand. He's just going to ask her to raise up from that bed. Behind him appears to be the mom and she is nervous. Her hands are kind of folded in prayer like any mom would be in that situation. Behind her, I believe one of those gentlemen is the father. He might be the big guy. And then there are three of the disciples that came with Jesus and they're standing in the background. And they're all in awe of what happens. Here's the big idea for this morning. If you want to see Jesus work in your life, get out of your comfort zone and stop listening to the crowd. If you want to see Jesus work in your life, break up the comfort zones. Stop listening to the negative voices that pull you away from Jesus. And wherever he leads, step forward. And every time you and I do that, we step into the mystery of how God responds and how God chooses to work in our time. And please understand this. There is nothing you can ever bring to him that is bothering Jesus. I hope that's the dominant concept you'll remember. There is nothing that his children can bring to him that falls under the heading of bothering Jesus. He loves you that much.